Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. Jim, we're beginning a two-part series. What's it going to be about and who are we bringing on with us? Well, Eric, for many decades, the Battle of Gettysburg was interpreted primarily through combat, weapons, tactics... But as I think more students become interested in the human interest aspects of the battle, the stories of the wounded and their medical treatment at field hospitals are receiving a renewed interest. So what was once limited to the groundbreaking work by the late historian Greg Coco has been expanded upon recently by several successful books that focus on this topic. And among the licensed battlefield guides, retired medical professionals Rick Schrader and Fran Fiak bring their own unique perspectives to the medical treatment of Gettysburg's casualties. So, we're going to welcome to the show our friends and colleagues, Rick Schrader and Fran Fiak. Now, Rick has been a past patron of several recent episodes, and probably many of you all know Fran, who runs 763 Leadership and the uh, Thursday night free Zoom to Gettysburg, on which both Eric and I have appeared in the past. So, we're going to welcome Rick and Fran to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. And it is somewhat fitting that we're talking about medical care during the Civil War, during the greatest medical crisis of our lifetimes with the, the COVID-19 crisis. So we did bring Rick and Fran on via Zoom. So if you do hear some maybe less than usual sound quality, that is why it was frankly the safest way to keep our social distancing. So everybody stays safe during this time. So we want to be safe and we want to keep our guests safe as well. The Socially Distanced Podcast. So before we get into the housekeeping, I should note that Jim and I are speaking for ourselves, and even though we are licensed battlefield guides here at Gettysburg, we are only speaking for ourselves. We are not speaking for any organization, anything like that. We happen to be guides, but I'm speaking for Eric. He's speaking for Jim. If you would like to help the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can first follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we say it every episode, if you can write us a review on the podcast platform of your choice, we would greatly appreciate that, and thank you to everyone who has already done so. Every week we keep getting really great comments and feedback on the show, and we're really happy about that. And we read most of those reviews. I mean, we actually read them. I do. Oh, yeah, I do. You know, it's not that we're trying to read our own press clippings, but I think it does help us understand what our listeners like and also what you might not like. Right. So we can be the best show we can be for you guys out there. Right. If you would like to donate to the show financially, there's a couple ways you can do that. You can give a one-time donation on PayPal, or if you want to do more than a one-time donation, you can do that on PayPal. And you can do that at paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Also, if you would like to give a recurring monthly donation of just a couple bucks here or there, you can do that on our new Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg Podcast. A lot of you have already chipped in. We greatly appreciate that because ultimately our mission is to bring what we think is the best Gettysburg content out there in podcast form and keep it free to the public. So you're really helping us with that mission. So thank you all for your support. Speaking of support, Jim, tell us about tonight's sponsor. We are coming to you all once again 
from Gettys Gear. Located at 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village across from the Tour Center, you can stop in and see Superfan Carrie, Superfan Ray, the great staff at Gettys Gear, or if you're not in town but you want to check in, you can give them a call at 717-334-3747. And folks, we say it every week, but it still holds true. They got a great collection of Gettysburg-themed products, apparel, accessories, dog treats, eats and drinks, headgear, t-shirts, all that kind of stuff. You want to stop into Gettys Gear, you want to support a small business, and you want to support a small business who supports the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. And Gettys Gear, you guys know it by now, they like to do history with a sense of style, and as we say on this show, that's the style. So thanks once again to Carrie and Ray at Gettys Gear. So let's bring in Rick and Fran as we begin our two-part look at medical care during the Gettysburg campaign. Okay, Rick and Fran, welcome back to the podcast. You know, you guys are our first, I think, repeat attendees after your stellar performances at the Fantasy Draft. So welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so I think we're going to start off with letting you guys talk about your favorite topic, which would be yourselves. Or maybe in both of your cases, Fran would be your favorite topic. I'm not sure. But uh, for, for the listeners at home, tell us how, how did two seasoned medical professionals from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, become obsessed with the Battle of Gettysburg? And how did you guys get together? Well, I'll take that first, Jim. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, a bone doctor, a bone surgeon. I moved to Johnstown in 1987 and started my practice there. I recently retired as of October 1st, and I've been a licensed battlefield guide since uh, 2016. Fran and I started to work together. Fran can talk a little bit more about himself, but he's a, a certified registered nurse anesthetist, meaning he, he passes gas all the time and put people to sleep. We found like ground and like interest, much to the disappointment of the people around us as we worked, because once we would start talking, we were paying attention to what we were doing. You could hear their eyes roll back in their heads. And uh, I started the guide exam process. And while I was successful with the written, I didn't pass the oral. And Fran goaded me into doing it again. And I said, I'll only do it if you do it with me. As Sherman said about Grant, uh, you know, I stood by him when he was drunk. and He stood by me when I was crazy. That's kind of the way I, I see uh, Fran and our relationship. We we very much enjoy doing all sorts of guiding activities, as you guys do. But with our background, we certainly feel that the medical end of this is something that we felt compelled to learn a lot about. Johnstown, where we worked, was a level one trauma center, um, the largest rural trauma center in Pennsylvania. So needless to say, there would be days and hours where Rick and I would be in a room together trying to put somebody back together. That relationship between anesthesia and surgery is one that we like to talk about on the battlefield. And I always tell people, they pay anesthesia to wake you up, not to put you to sleep. So there's times working with Rick where Rick would be on somebody's femur. Somebody would be putting something in their head, fixing a head wound. Plastic would be there. I mean, there's times that we would work together. But through that, we discovered that we did have this love for history. And before you know it, we found a bunch of people that had a love for history that developed into we would be bringing yearly hospital visits down to the battlefield. And we would sell out a bus in 10 minutes. And, and you know, Jim, you've been on some of them. So yeah. infection hit the hospital. And that's kind of how we did it. And we would travel back and forth to the battlefield with Gettysburg dailies and books and articles. 
And when Rick and I talk professionally about what we do, we tell people all the time, you're just going to be a part of the conversation that we had in our cars that we could only have when the two of us were in the cars, not when anybody else was. And we would pose all the questions. And that's kind of how we got started. Yeah, I was uh, lucky enough to do that tour with Wayne and, and you guys the last couple of years. But to this day, I'm still not sure how to pronounce Kanemawaho. Where the hell were you guys from? Kanema. There you go. There you Johnstown go. Flood. Well, hopefully some of the folks from Kanema are listening to us. Uh, yeah, our listenership has just jumped. In Johnstown, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully all their equipment isn't getting flooded out, you know, because the water is <laughs> yeah. corrosive to the, to the microphones. You know, it's interesting that because of the flood, National Guard units that were from Johnstown actually had to come here to Gettysburg and train. Oh, is so, that right? A huge National Guard facility actually on battlefield. So kind of those weird connections. I don't know when I'll ever get to talk about that again. Well, exactly right. You know, not 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 sort of in the uh, medical outline here today, but maybe kind of a little primer, you know, Eric's brought up connections. Did one of you guys want to tell the listeners about the Catherine Foster connections? Yeah, I can. Catherine Foster uh, lives in Gettysburg and she's here during the battle and she is in a two-story home. She's on the second floor watching troops go past her home and she's there with her cousin. And as this is going on, shelling's occurring, but she says to her cousin, let's go down and get those poor boys some water to drink. And they, they exit the second floor balcony. And as they go down, the balcony is tore off by a, a shell. I always tell people on my tours, we all know about Jenny Wade as the first civilian killed during the battle. But had the had Foster and her sister stayed up there, Jenny would have been number three. She would have been the question to get a beer at the bar. <laughs> now, after that, she decided to go to a quieter place. And she came to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And then she was here on May 31st, 1889, when the great Johnstown flood struck. A dam 14 miles above the city broke, came into the town. Most people don't know the first thing it did when it hit Johnstown, it went to a stockyard of barbed wire. Johnstown was world-renowned for barbed wire production. So think about that going into a wave. It gathers all these people. And Catherine Foster absolutely has to jump house to house to house to escape. Now, she is buried in Evergreen Cemetery uh, up there to do that, but Catherine Foster's the other Johnstown connection. And if I remember right, isn't there an interaction with John Reynolds, supposedly she has? I remember uh, reading that you know, Reynolds rides by and says something, you know, you girls need to get down from here, you're going to get hurt or something like that. I think he warned them that they needed to be in the cellar. That yeah. there was going to be some dangerous activity as he's that that house is located, I think, at Washington and Middle Street or yeah. High Street. I'm not sure where, but I think that's right, Eric. I think uh, Reynolds did have uh, exchange words. Imagine that Reynolds telling people to get out of the line of fire. <laughs> Oops, he, he should have heeded his own advice. And that's the reason when Rick and I tour, uh, our phones have the lightning and thunderstorm alert. From the Weather Channel on because rain and thunder doesn't mean anything to us. <laughs> All right. Well, more of that to come in our uh, upcoming special three-part Catherine Foster episode. <laughs> so, but now, now we can say after today, Johnstown has additional connections to the Battle of Gettysburg, and we can now officially add you guys. So with our topic today being medical and, and field hospital and surgical treatments during the Battle of Gettysburg, should we maybe start with the top? We'll start with a high level and then go down. Um, just kind of start with telling the listeners about, you know, what made a good field hospital? How do you, how do we determine where to put our wounded guys? 
Well, the, the field hospital is one part of a system that both armies had adopted two years into the war to treat wounded people. And it, it's actually a, a series of places that a wounded soldier will go. So the, the path of a wounded soldier, first of all, they're wounded on the battlefield. If they can get a tourniquet on them or something, they will. And the first stop will be what they call a forward aid station, a dressing station, a bandage station. These are located all over the battlefield. Now, we know the one, the one that's across from the um, Irish Brigade Monument is the one that everybody knows about, but that's one of many. The Timbers Farm might be one for the Confederates. I have a report of a soldier sitting there. Now, when you get to the field aid station, right there will be a surgeon. Now, Rick is going to go into a little bit more what a surgeon means, but a surgeon would be at this field aid station. And this surgeon, politely, is not the brightest crayon in the box because he's up where the bullets are flying. But this guy, who's not the best surgeon in the world, is going to start to make three of the biggest decisions on the battlefield. When he looks at your wound, he's going to make three choices. One, your wound is mortal. You're struck in the head and the abdomen. We'll get you out of here, but you're not a priority. Secondly, your wound's minor. It doesn't matter if you're shell-shocked or if you're afraid. He's going to bandage you up and put you back in. And third, your wound would be surgical. And if it's surgical, uh, you would be one of the first people um, evacuated and you would be sent to, to a field hospital, which would be the second step. Now, um, I'm going to let Rick talk about the medical thing, but what are the characteristics of a field hospital? You see them all around the battlefield. They're labeled. But you, everybody out here has been in a field hospital. When Rick and I first uh, had the honor of looking at the Spangler Farm, after about 20 minutes, I said, hey, Rick, there's the ER, the admission place. Here's supplies. Here's the hospital ward. Here's the OR. Here's recovery room. Here's where the, the burials occur. Here's where the supplies are. So when you go to a, a sterilized field hospital today, you need to look around because you've been in one and you usually find a, a source of water there and open fields. But now, Rick, when you, when you get to that field hospital, do we have any, what happens there? Well, just a couple of words on, on, selection of these facilities. How do you know where to put a field aid station? How does the farm become a field hospital? In a nutshell, a field aid station is within a range of bullets, but it has to be in a prote protected area, up behind a large rock. If you stand at that plaque for Z. Boylson Adams field aid station on Stony Hill, you're down below the line of Stony Hill. You're protected. And these field aid stations that are all over the battlefield, some of them are in small farms. The Hummelbaugh farm, the Fry farm were field aid stations. Um, but many of them were just in gullies. But if you get then evacuated to a division field hospital, sometime at the beginning of the battle, each division has a medical director. And he and his staff are going to choose that farm because, as Fran said, it's got a water source. It's close to roads. There's shade. There may be good airflow. And that's why the Spanglers were told, we're going to take over your farm and make it into a field hospital. And that's where the operating was done. Now, that's the middle tier of a three-tiered system that we can get into, talk about the last part of it. But what we associate with Civil War hospitals are truly the division field hospitals. What about the level of the physicians here, Rick? And why don't you give five minutes on how physicians are trained? They're, they're not the... Dollars crayon in the box. No, and, and the guys up at the field aid stations, I, I've always gotten the impression they were kind of the younger guys who got told you're going to go up front and be within range of, uh, of danger. 
surgeons and physicians, those terms are interchangeable on the Civil War battlefield. Many uh, surgeons had, at the beginning of the Civil War, had never done any surgery. Surgery wasn't a common thing that was done in medical care in the 1850s. Anesthesia had only really come into being since 1842 and 1846. So it wasn't something that was being done outside of probably major urban centers. And training for physicians, doctors, uh, was much different than it is now. It was a two-year program. Uh, you went to lectures for six months. Then you came back for the second year and take the same courses over again. And then you can apprentice with a local physician in your hometown. Or you can go off to Philadelphia or Richmond or New York or Charleston and spend extra time with training there in what we would say now is a, a residency. But very few people were trained as surgeons per se. Going back to the aid stations, one question I had as I was listening to you guys, you know, you, you watch movies or whatever, you read it, accounts, and somebody gets wounded and you kind of just see somebody tell them, go to the rear, you're wounded. How would a guy find an aid station? You know, where? how, how would he know where to go? That's a good question. And they tried to mark them with flags, uh, red flags, so that the injured individual could get himself there. We'll talk, I'm sure, in some detail, but it was pretty clear that four guys weren't to help the injured guy back to the aid station. I mean, the effort was to keep people at the front line. And they would also post signs, the aid station here, and so people knew where to go. So they would try to find their way to them. I'm sure they could follow some of the other wounded. Now, if you were injured in the leg and couldn't walk, somebody was going to have to drag you in. Probably the biggest difference between a, a forward aid station, bandage dressing station, and a field hospital is the equipment that the surgeons had up front. They didn't have anesthesia. They didn't have anesthetics. They were, uh, I like the way Rick describes it. They're an ambulance that's not on wheels. And that's kind of like what their job is. Their job is to start this thing called triage. And by 1863, North and South, they had developed the same system to get people off this, off the battlefield rather than sit out there for days. Well, that, that brings up a point, and you'd kind of mentioned it earlier, kind of this three-pronged system that you're talking about. I often see that in books as really being specifically attributed to Letterman, but you're telling us the Confederates basically did the same thing also. Was there a Letterman equivalent on the Confederate side? There was, but it evolved. If you look at the first Battle of Bull Run, people laid on that battlefield for a week. And of course, many of the wounded died. Jonathan Letterman, we're going to mention his name more than once, really put into, into place. He took his position July 4th, 1862 by the Battle of Antietam in September of 1862. He had put in place this stepwise triage system to get people off the battlefield in a timely system. And the surgeons were, on both sides, were trained in similar places. And many of them, like the generals, knew each other. And the system they had, while it was often hampered by more supply problems than on the Union side, it was largely the same sort of system with the forward aid station, the division field hospital, and then what we call a general hospital as that third part of the triage system. Right. And in fact, for the Confederacy, the, the surgeon's name was Lafayette Guild. And I read somewhere that Lafayette Guild and Jonathan Letterman met, and I'm going to say following Antietam to kind of say, 
time out. Let's get these people out of here. And I, and I just read that yesterday to do that. The Lafayette Guild would be the equivalent. The, high, the medical hierarchy in both armies was about the same. Okay, so professional wrestling match, Steel Cage, Jonathan Letterman versus Lafayette Guild. Who wins and why? Letterman's not very big. He's kind of a skinny guy. <laughs> You've got an answer. Lafayette Guild's body build, but um, although Letterman is a he's a pretty dogged guy, so uh, I don't know. Could be a could be a, a, a tough one to call. Yeah, the, the Lafayette Guild has more problems than Letterman had, and that was with supplies, medications anesthetics, broken down wagons, the whole bit. So I think it would be it would be a, a match that would have to be decided some somehow, some way. So Rick, that you alluded to the fact that after the field hospital we talked about the third step. What's the third step for the uh, wounded except at Gettysburg? Well, once the wounded at a division field hospital were able to be transferred, the idea was to get them off of the battlefield and out of locale where they were in our case, that the town of Gettysburg, as soon as possible, to get them to a general hospital. Now, the general hospital, in many instances, is a brick-and-mortar hospital, and there were large general hospitals in Philadelphia. There was one in New York, Baltimore, and on the Confederate side, it was pretty much back in Richmond. Many of the soldiers were too severely injured to be put on a train or to be taken by wagon to a general hospital, and so after the Battle of Gettysburg, Camp Letterman was established as a general hospital, and it was a large tent hospital. It's not a building. It's uh, currently you would find uh, the ground Camp Letterman was on with the lonely marker right across from Haas's restaurant on Route 30 in Getty. That hospital was open for about four months after the battle and treated up to 4,000 people, wounded soldiers from both sides, until they were stable enough to be transferred out of the town of Gettysburg and, and off to other hospitals. And like, like every hospital we talked about, uh, Letterman's Hospital was placed in a place called Wolf's Woods. And there's two sources of water there. There's drainage. There's a railroad that could get in if the, the, the bridge was blown out by the Confederates leaving the town of Gettysburg. They just got that fixed two years ago, I think. <laughs> um, Better late than never. But our, our theory holds true. There, there's If you see a hospital, you should just start looking for those things. There's awards, there's ORs, there's PACUs, there's kitchens, there's supplies. So probably one of the more famous field hospitals here is is the Spangler Farm. A lot of people have visited it, a lot of people know it. Is there anything kind of unique about that farm and how it fits sort of in the organization of these divisional hospitals? That's a good question, Eric. Um, there are division field hospitals, as these are called, all over the battlefield. The Spangler Farm's a little unique, well, in, in, in many cases. Number one, it's one you can visit because it's not in private hands anymore. The foundation, uh, Gettysburg Foundation runs it, and, uh, and the Park Service does some interpretive programs there intermittently. But the Spangler Farm is a division field hospital of all three divisions of the 11th Corps. Just by happenstance, the the second corps has their division hospitals very close to one another, but each division is separated. So the Spangler Farm is a little unique, but the mechanism, the mechanics of how it runs, is the same everywhere. It's just it's such a readily accessible uh, hospital um, that's on the battlefield that everybody can visit. My thought is too, with the Eleventh Corps being very small, I guess probably 
logistically it made more sense to have it as a basically all three divisions rather than have individual ones, I would assume. And, and when you read about the 11th Corps medical staff riding up to the Spangler family, I'm not aware that they were trying to establish any other division field hospitals anywhere else. Now, we should mention division field hospitals need to be out of range of the enemy's bullets and prefer and out of range of their artillery. And there's a time in the battle of Gettysburg where that becomes a problem. The Spangler farm ends up the closest division field hospital to the Confederate lines by the time the battle's over. So there is, you have to choose the right place to keep your surgeons and your patients safe from the battle. You know, you bring up a good point there. Do we have any documented stories of any of the division hospitals being established and then, oh crap, we're taking fire, let's get up and move? One of the um, places that we'll talk about uh, is the Hummelbach Farm. And Rick and I laugh about this all the time. The Hummelbach Farm was a forward aid station originally, uh, just like just like Boylston Adams Rock in the weed field. As the uh, July 2nd rolled forward and the amount of people wounded coming to his forward aid station, his job was to triage them and send them off to division field hospitals. Well, eventually the division field hospitals say, don't send us anymore. We can't do anything. And he morphs the Hummelbach farm into a field hospital, which is kind of interesting because the guy just graduated in like January or February and he didn't stay at a Holiday Inn. But then he starts doing amputations for like 24 hours at a place that was supposed to be a field aid station. And it's kind of, it happens all the, the casualties at Gettysburg blew everything out of how hospitals did things. Yeah. I and the division field hospitals for the second Corps, which is what the Hummelball farm was, a field aid station for the second Corps, are all, three of them are located along the Tawny Town Road. And your question, Jim, is very apropos because yes, on the night of July 2nd, they had to, as, as, the colonel on match would say they had to bug out. They had to move off of the Tawny Town Road and basically move their operation back to where the outlet center off of Route 15 is now, which is actually where a large cluster of Union Division field hospitals ended up because, quite simply, the battle rolled too close to those hospitals. So imagine what they had to do on, on the evening and night of July 2nd. They had to take all of these wounded soldiers yeah back further yet. Do we have any accounts of, of any members of medical staff actually being casualties here at the battle? Yes, there was a surgeon killed uh, here at uh, Gettysburg. His name was uh, uh, Dr. Moore. He, I believe he was with the 61st Ohio and timely questionnaire. He died in the Spangler Bunch. Mm-hmm. He was at a forward aid station at the Gwynn House or around the Gwynn House uh, which is right across kind of from the uh, Widow Leiser house. And a during uh, the bombardment before Pickett's Charge, a large piece of shrapnel ripped into his thigh. Now, it oh. didn't cut a vessel and it didn't break the bone, but it laid his thigh wide open. He could not be evacuated until the bombardment stopped and the attack was over. And he was evacuated to the Spangler farm. So he's injured on July 3rd, and I think he died probably of overwhelming infection on July 6th. So, yeah, there was a surgeon who died at the Battle of Gettysburg. And there were other medical people who were injured, but that was the only surgeon who died. Mm-hmm. And just a couple pieces of housekeeping on the Spangler Farm. 
One, we did cover Lewis Armistead's treatment there in our uh, very special Lewis Armistead season one episode with Wayne Motts. Two, I'd like to give a shout out to our friend Ron Kirkwood's book, Too Much for Human Endurance, published by Savas Beatty, which is a great account of uh, treatment at the Spangler Farm. And three, all hail our benevolent overlords at the Gettysburg Foundation. I'll throw that in. So. <laughs> Could anything possibly not close the loop on the Spangler Farm better than that? So I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, so back to Camp Letterman. You guys talked about you talked about what makes a a field hospital and some of the traits and attributes that we should look for. Uh, how about the Camp Letterman Cemetery? What do you guys know about that? The Camp Letterman uh, Hospital is one of those places that's a, a passion that Rick and I have. We think that piece of land needs preserved because of, first of all, the hospital. Half of it's gone. If you drive out York Street, uh, York Road, you'll see the giant supermarket. There's a hotel that's on Camp Letterman property, but that big open field is, is there. Part of the thing that, that attracts me to that is not only the medicine, but on the other side of that hill, they have a cemetery. Now we talk about Gettysburg's Soldiers National Cemetery and how it was truly supposed to be reserved for Union casualties only. And we do know there are some Confederates in the Soldiers National Cemetery. But I always tell people Camp Letterman might be the first Soldiers National Cemetery on this piece of ground that treated the soldiers as, as Americans. Now you can get a PDF file that will tell you the burial sites at Camp Letterman. And it'll say row A1, row A, you know, B1 through 30. I think there's 336 burials out there. But when you read that PDF, you'll see Jim Hessler, Pennsylvania, Fran Fiat, right beside him, Fran Fiat, Virginia, Eric Lindblade, North Carolina, Joe Smith, Massachusetts. They buried them as American soldiers, not as fighting for different causes. So for me alone, I think that's um, a good idea. You, you also asked us a little bit about limb burial sites, and Rick and I have beaten that around for a little bit. We, there's a couple of counts, but people don't talk about limb burial sites. But we do wonder, at Camp Letterman, you'll see row B, you'll see soldiers in one, two, and three, and then you'll see open four or five, nothing's there. Whether they're limb burial pits or citizens came back and exhumed their soldiers and took them out. But we do know that the major procedure, and we'll be talking about it, was amputation. And we do know that we have like Hugh Ziegler at the seminary, who was 10 years old at the time, talking about one of his jobs after the battle was to help the surgeons. And he would bring water, change straw from the bloody operating rooms, and then he would be his job to gather up the severed limbs and dispose of them. And by disposing of them, they mean throw them into what's known as limb pits. Now, I think a couple of years ago, one was discovered in Virginia. A couple of articles that we've read, sometimes there was dedicated limb pits or there would be ravines that they would throw everything in and cover it with lime and cover it with dirt. And sometime, Rick and I were talking yesterday, I can see if you're digging a hole. And I always laugh about people at Gettysburg saying the burials. If you've been on that battlefield, you know you couldn't go out there with a shovel and dig a six-foot hole to save your life without running into that rock. Just like forward aid stations, they're all over. And when Rick and I talked this morning about this, have they been disturbed? Oh, yeah, they've been disturbed. And But what would you disturb? And that's what we don't know. When we see pictures of them, there's no boots, there's no material on them. Only if your name is Jackson or Sickles does your limb get preserved. What do you think, Rick? I think that's true. When you perform an amputation, 
you're doing it so the soldier will survive, or at least you're trying to. So you're not going to reunite the arm you threw out the window with the soldier if he dies two days later. That arm and leg, those are going to be buried. And if I'm not mistaken, the burial pit near uh, Manassas yielded like seven extremities and two bodies. So while they're throwing them in with bodies, they're not trying to, if you will, reunite them. And and I would suggest that Jim and Eric, your Iverson episode, talked about some of the farms out on the Mummersburg Road that were Confederate Field Division hospitals. I think if you want to find buried limbs, you probably need to go dig on those far removed or outwardly removed farms if the uh, if the owners would give you permission. For the love for the love of God, super fans, do not go out and just start digging. Yeah, and you actually read some accounts of the Gettysburg newspaper after the war. You even read some of the accounts of, of folks when they were putting the the camp in uh, during the First World War. Even CCC workers were uncovering things as they were paving, as they're digging, and so yeah, I think this idea that they're everywhere is is certainly the case. I even know you know a few relic hunters around here that have you know stumbled upon you know what they call gore pits. I think it'd be hard to miss if you really started looking for them. If there's been construction around an area where there's a division field hospital, it's less likely that they're still there. I mean, if there were limbs buried next to Schmucker Hall as they developed the rest of the buildings mm-hmm. on Seminary Ridge, they would have encountered those. Now, whether they just cemented over them or mm-hmm. they they took them out, who knows? And, and the fact, too, that the Confederates remained interred here on the battlefield for many years after the battle, nine years, decomposition of the human body takes a lot of time. So, yeah, and I would say it's with every any Civil War battlefield you go to, you, you can't not say that there's something that remains. That's why we protect Gettysburg so much. It's yep. the cemetery as much as it's a historical spot. Just one random thought there. Now, for you guys and for the listeners at home, we're going to have a very special edition of the Dan Sickles Report later on, but I think, Rick, you touched on it. I often get asked when telling the heartwarming story of General Sickles losing his leg and saving his leg for posterity, somebody will always raise their hand and say, how did they get the skin off the bone? So was there a procedure for that? Did they just leave it in a field until the maggots got it? How did this work? I think it depends on who you are or, well, who you are. I've read accounts of limbs being put into, quote, brine, which I guess would be a heavily salted solution. Or back in my formative years, I read one time that Sickle's leg was put in a barrel of whiskey. So I don't know what was ultimately done. There are examples of mummified extremities that have been found. There was one down on the battlefield at Antietam that was found. But, of course, the only thing that's going to remain after a period of time in most instances are the bones. And, and as Fran said, eventually they're going to go away, but they'll, they'll be discoverable for a long period of time. So I know you guys have touched on general education and background of the surgeons and the doctors and things like that. It feels like, particularly when you read these accounts, the field hospitals and the aid stations, you always see somebody referring to the drunken doctor, you know, some drunken civilian doctor just took the leg off, you know, kind of thing. So maybe just a quick discussion here about best practices. Are these guys butchers? Are they professionals? Are they somewhere in between? What do you guys think? 
Well, I, of course, I'm a little defensive about this. So, uh, um, I, I was just actually two days ago listening to a, uh, um, uh, uh, watching a uh, YouTube video about the disaster of Civil War medicine. Um, and I've been on a tour where the grandfather turned to the grandson and said, you know, the reason the doctors didn't do better is because they were just too bullheaded to do it the right way. Um, you can't fault people for what they didn't know. We're talking about 1863. One of the tragedies of this war at many levels is Within 15 or 20 years, there are major advances in healthcare around the world, ranging from, if not sterile, clean environments to do surgery and to decrease the rest of the risk of infection. The understanding that bacteria and infection are real and they're linked together. In 1867, a surgeon in Scotland figures out that spraying something called carbolic acid over the area I'm operating decreases the risk of infection tremendously. Surgeons didn't know that you shouldn't just rinse off the saw in bloody water. They didn't know that you shouldn't probe a wound with your finger. That was standard care. So, and they didn't have the capability. Fran mentioned this when we were talking about triage. If you're shot in the brain, if you're shot in the abdomen, you're probably going to die. If you're shot in the chest, it's very likely you're going to die. What can a surgeon do to help save a, a, an injured soldier's life is, is remove the injury if you can't save the leg. And to be brutally honest, it took a lot more time to save a limb than it did to do an amputation. Well, that's called a resection, a, a removal of the damaged tissue. If you're laying outside of the Sarah Patterson farm with hundreds of people, the surgeons in that barn got a lot of work to do. And, and I can just tell you from my experience, putting people back together, I don't want this to sound uh, out of line. We Our job is to put people back together, certainly, but sometimes mangled extremities are mangled extremities. And the path to save the patient's life is to do an amputation and remove it. And the technology, of course, to save a limb wasn't there in 1863 that there is now. Yeah, and I think if you compare the Civil War to what you would have seen on even, you know, 50 years earlier on a Napoleonic battlefield. It's night and day. Even the Crimean War, it was night and day less than 10 years before. So I think the idea that these surgeons are incompetent, you know, I think about every time I've ever had to go to a hospital, how many pieces of technology they're using on you to figure out what's going on. You know, they're not having MRIs or CAT scans or x-rays at a Civil War hospital. So, I mean, how do you do surgery without an MRI? How do you do surgery without that? So I think that sometimes changes people's opinion a little bit, or hopefully it does. And also the, the surgeons at the field aid hospitals were called operators because they were, they were the more trained, more seasoned people. And when you would come to a field hospital, it wasn't like some doctor saying, I'm taking off your arm at the elbow. They would, they would consult and they would reprioritize. And by this time, they, they decided, hey, Jim, if you're going to take in off elbows, this is your case. It's not no longer a rank thing. Jonathan Letterman said, enough with this. Who's good at doing this procedure with a better chance to, to save the man's life to do that? Now, we are going to talk a little bit about diseases, but since you brought up drunkenness, your Iverson Part 1 podcast, you, you alluded a little bit to um, his being uh, drunk. But anyhow, uh, there's an article by Thomas Lowry, and he looked at 5,000 Union court martial records. And these are the common causes of 
drunkenness in Union court martials. So I'm going to read the list rather quickly, and then I want you guys to describe how your New Year's Eve was. So uh, in no particular order, but he has them in order. Number one, slightly drunk. Number two, in liquor, but not drunk. Number three, intoxicated, but not drunk. Number four, drunk, but not too drunk for duty. Number five, on a spree. Six, drunk and disorderly. Seven, too drunk to do his duty. Habitually drunk, staggering drunk, and beastly drunk. So when you talk about Iverson now, you've got to you got to stage him for us. What was that last one beastly drunk? Should we beastly just give that one? Should we just give that one to Iverson? Beastly drunk. No, no, beastly. Ben Butler. The beast. Ooh, another Ben go. Butler reference. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. On a, on a more serious note, I saw a, um, a conversation on social media recently. You know, so take that for what it's worth. But somebody was promoting one of these books, one of these non-Greg Coco books about Gettysburg Wounded. And somebody made a comment to the effect of that Dr. Letterman did, quote unquote, not come off well in this book in terms of its his treatment of the wounded. And it got me thinking, you know, we always talk about all the great medical innovations that we, you know, we can credit Dr. Letterman for. Guys, look at Letterman, you know, obviously through a modern lens. I mean, as you guys look at Letterman, are there things he did that we just, you know, would not be recommending today? I think uh, the hair on the back of my neck stood up when you said somebody said Letterman didn't come off well. If you remember, and, and, and the, the super fans will, Jonathan Letterman was my ringer, my, my, in the, uh, in the uh, fantasy draft. Letterman, we all benefit even in civilian life. And I've not served in the military. And certainly if you have listeners who have a military medical background, they would know more about this than I do. But even in civilian hospitals, especially at trauma centers like Fran and I work at, we benefit from the advances of Jonathan Letterman. He put into place a system, we've talked about the triage, but he also, as importantly, put into place a rapid evacuation system that the legacy of that are the helicopters that you hear landing and, and taking off from uh, hospitals, taking people to Hershey or Philadelphia or York. Letterman did a number of things that I think are underappreciated. And one of them was, as Fran alluded to this, he did away with, you'll be the head surgeon because you've got the highest rank. He designated, and Fran used this term, operate. And each division hospital had three operators. And those were the guys who were the best at doing the surgery. And that was determined by the group of surgeons. The other thing he did that's very important is that he instituted a very, and of course, uh, if we're going to talk about hospitals, paperwork comes right to the forefront. He instituted a very detailed record-keeping system because one of the goals right from the beginning was to try to learn in this process of taking care of the wounded and the disease. And so they had uh, assistant surgeons assigned to just record-keeping at these division field hospitals. Not record-keeping for billing, but record-keeping for the care of these injuries um, and how we were going to learn from them. Letterman was really an innovator, and I think that certainly in military medicine with the tiered evacuation system, but even, as I said, in civilian care, getting to the place that does these surgeries as fast as possible is still appreciated. And I even think in the civilian world, the idea of how you would handle a mass casualty event in a city, I mean, is very similar to what you, I think Letterman would understand that process. 
That's right. And triage at the moment, you know, you're basically tiering the individuals as to where they're at. And so there's a lot of things that we're looking at. And we really look at it. How many lives has Letterman saved beyond his years yeah. um, because of these innovations and others building upon what he has put in place? Well, and one of the things that very readily is apparent when you go in a modern day trauma center is there's no time wasted. I mean, if mm-hmm. you need to get to the operating room within, I don't know, Fran, if you, you, they could get people from the ER to the OR in 15 or 20 minutes if needed, if needed. And those hospitals always have an operating room available as well. And so what you alluded to, Eric, is very true that unfortunately the mass casualty experiences that we, that we see in the civilian world, hospitals have worked out, sadly, how you need to do that to maximize saving people's lives and not all clustering in one place. you got to divide uh, the talent and the skill to save as many people. So, guys, we've talked a lot about doctors. Perhaps we should take a minute to uh, tell us a little bit about nurses. What was that? What were their experiences like? Well, that is that is an important fact that gets lost. Um, there's a a town around these soldiers that are wounded. We could start with uh, Annie Etheridge. Uh, she is with the Third Michigan. She's at the Vindier, if I'm saying that correct. Annie Etheridge, gentle Annie, is going to get an award for her ability to help soldiers. And during the battle, when bullets are flying, she would fill her horse with lint, which was something to stop bleeding. So I tell people, uh, Annie Etheridge, in a sense, was the first paramedic that I know of on the battlefield. And she's going to she's gonna get the Kearney Cross for her bravery from the men. So that's one. Also, we tend to forget that after the surgery's over, the doctor moves on to the next case. So from Emmitsburg come, come Carmelite nuns, women start coming to the battlefield, nursing starts to occur. And one of the things that I talked about on one of our, our talks was it was the Victorian era. And don't tell me the equal rights started in the 70s. It started in 1863. You know, when you were a woman over this time period, the only naked person you would see would be your brother and your husband. Now, Rick and I have been in hospitals and we've talked to nurses in hospitals. We know what happens to young men when they're hurt. They curse, they swear, all right? They make suggestive remarks. And these women of the Victorian era are being asked to turn them over on their sides, to hold them in places that they would never be allowed to touch them, all right, to feed them while suggestive comments are made, and we don't have anything written about it. Theory is the reason we don't have anything written about it is because it's the Victorian era. That's why. They're they're keeping that to themselves, but these women are real heroes. What do you think, Rick? Well, I think that's absolutely true, and it's important to know nursing as a discipline really didn't exist much before the Civil War. You were nursed at home by family members. There were nuns, as Fran mentioned, the order of the nuns down in Emmitsburg. Their vocation, their stated job was nursing. Other nursing or other nun um, sisters would be involved in education. Luckily, forgetting these nuns in Emmitsburg were nurses by training. And it's very interesting to, to read about that order because they went all over the North and South to care for wounded soldiers. But most of the nurses at the start of the war were men. They were injured soldiers. Um, the role of the hospital steward, who was an assistant yeah. to the surgeons and supervised the nurses. Some of the best sources we have are, in fact, diaries from women 
who were volunteer nurses, Sophronia Buckland, Cornelia Hancock. These are great sources, but most of the nurses were were men. But there's no doubt that, especially once it gets out to Camp Letterman, and especially even before that, in the immediate aftermath of the battle, um, there's some really important work that's done by women who just got themselves here. They were volunteer nurses. Many of them didn't even have to go through Dorothea Dix, who was an anomaly in charge of the uh, sol- uh, the nurses in the Army of the Potomac. They just got themselves here and, and waited in. Nobody was going to say, I'm sorry, we don't have anything for you. There's that great story about Sarah Broadhead, I think, that walks up to the St. Francis Church and walks in and sees the destruction of human beings around her. And she literally goes to the front porch and, and vomits because she can't believe it, but she collects herself and she goes back in. There's no question that, that surgery and anesthesia was important. But man, once it's over, getting you back to health is food, nutrition, clean dressings, fresh air, the whole bit. And uh, that falls to nursing and the Christian commission. And what did Sherman say about um, Vicar Dyke? She ranks me. Yeah, yeah. The nurse that was with him. Her supervisor out west, right. Ranks me. Can't help you, she ranks me. And I have to think for the civilians that are here that are sort of, you know, become nurses by really no choice. They have to do it. Their concept of what they're going to see, I mean, think about how war was depicted. You might see an engraving of battle, but you're not seeing limbs missing. You're not seeing people's faces blown off. I mean, so I think there's nothing to prepare you for what it would have actually looked like. So, I mean, this idea of the shock that they see when you see a Civil War field hospital is is certainly true. And you even see it with the soldiers. Read how many times soldiers say, I don't want to go to a hospital. I'd rather just be killed outright in the field. I don't want to have to deal with this. There's something close to hell on earth. It's probably a Civil War hospital. Agreed. And you hit the nail on the head, Eric. There's 21,000 wounded left in this town of 2,400 people. Every man, woman, and child in this town is going to come in contact with that. Even if their home isn't a hospital, they're going to see it on the streets. And so right. I can't imagine being a 10-year-old like Hugh Ziegler and how you come out of this without being really significantly impacted. Yeah, and sometimes when I have tours with school groups, we'll talk about the medical care and, you know, you know the idea that your house gets turned into a hospital. Right. You know, and, and I will say, you know, how many of you would like to live next to a busy emergency room, you know, all night on a Saturday night? And, you know, very few kids raise their hands. The, the twisted ones do. But, you know, but the normal kids don't. Which kind of is a great segue. So all four of us are battlefield guides. Obviously, with you guys on, we want to talk about the experience of amputations. But I think we're also, I think we're going to do that as kind of, again, as I alluded to before, a very special edition of the Dan Sickles Report. But we're all battlefield guides. We've all been in that situation where the father, one of the adults on the tour, turns to the kids and says, Yeah, son, and in the Civil War, they didn't even have anesthesia. They just cut off the limb and told them to bite the bullet kind of thing. So (laughs) Fran is our resident and the podcast's official anesthesiologist. Do you want to take that one? Oh, I'm a nurse anesthetist. Oh, Um, wow. Well, you've just just been. That's okay. Administer general anesthesia, and I'll officially be retiring in March of uh, this year coming up. Uh, it also comes from the movie Gettysburg when Tom, Ch- uh, Tom Chamberlain walks in after he's gone to see the old Irish Mick, and he says, it's terrible over there. There's men having anesthesia. A man ought not be seen in a time like that. Uh, there's a lot of that going on, and certainly 
it would be possible to bite on a bullet, bite on a strap, bite on a stick for minor things. If you had a dislocated shoulder, if you had a, a wound that was uh, a finger that need cleaned and dressed, you could do that. But for the surgery that we're talking about, these soldiers of everything against them when wounded, one of the two good things for them was anesthesia existed. There were two anesthetics at this time, uh, ether and chloroform. They use chloroform more than ether. Ether has this habit of blowing up. Yeah. It's yeah. near the flame. <laughs> and they're going to be working under yeah. kerosene. <laughs> I don't know, Rick, that would ruin your day, I think. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to be working yeah. under flames at night, and they are going to be operating around the clock during this battle. The surgeons, for the most part, would work outside because even today, light is a problem. So they would work outside, but at night they would move in underneath. Now, a couple of things about anesthesia. We use a, a journal called the, the Medical and Surgical History of the War of Rebellion. Rick, how many years before the OR does it come out? Well, it was in the 1880s or 1870s, I think. It's, it's massive. It's like the OR for mm -hmm. medical, medical and surgical history of the War of the Rebellion. Um, it's six huge volumes. Um, and I, I believe it was published by the medical department before the ORs came out. But, you know, if that book came out today, everyone would say, yeah, but are the maps any good? <laughs> well, the drawings are excellent. The drawings are awesome. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just being sarcastic and cynical. Go on, Reg. There are color, color photos in it. And that was one of the things Letterman did. There would be a surgeon uh, there to write. And uh, when the patient was having surgery, they would keep records to learn from their experiences. But we think there's around 90,000 surgeries recorded in there. And of that, less than 100 have died from anesthesia. Now, how does it get out there that there was no anesthetic? And it's the way it was delivered and how modern anesthetics work. When you went to sleep last night, you experienced the stages of anesthesia. You went and crawled into bed and you were lying there resting and you're not awake and you're not asleep. And then you fall into a deep sleep. And then in the morning, you start to come into a light sleep again. And maybe you hear noises or the light in the room. And then you come back to consciousness. That's exactly how anesthesia has to work. You cannot cut off a man's leg, his arm, fix a wound without giving them some type of anesthesia. Anesthesia is basically a controlled drug overdose. We give you enough medication that you go unconscious and that Rick can do his job. The problem with the anesthesia in 1863, it was these two drugs, chloroform and ether, are vaporized liquids. So before you think, oh my God, where is he going? Every time you fill your car up with gasoline, it's a liquid going into your tank and you can see the vapors coming off and you can smell it. These two drugs were liquids, but when exposed to, when exposed to atmospheric pressure, they turn into vapors. So soldiers would have two ways to get um, this anesthetic. First, they would take a, a cloth, 16 inches by 16 inches, fold it like a ice cream cone. Then they would invert it so that the wide part was over the mouth. And then they would take a can or a bottle of these agents and they would drip it on to the cloth where they would breathe it in and they would put them off to sleep. Now, the problem is they're operating outside. And as these patients are going to sleep, they're into this phase where they're not awake and they're not asleep. And in anesthesia, it's called hyperexcitability. At that point, if any loud noise occurs, if anything happens, that patient's going to have a hyper response to it. Think about being startled when you're not awake and not asleep. 
that happens, we believe in anesthesia that that's what these soldiers are witnessing as they go go by. Rick, did you have a comment before? I yeah, and, and, and you just hit on it, Fran. Um, if I'm a surgeon at a field aid state or a, a, a division field hospital, once the patient is anesthetized, I don't really care if they're moving or not. If I can do my operation, I'm going to go ahead because you know what? There's another 150 guys laying out in that yard. And if we're going to do an amputation, it's important that the patient's pain be controlled. But nowadays, we wait for you to give the appropriate drugs so that all of their muscle contractions and everything, even though they're asleep, all of that goes away. We didn't wait for that. And so, yeah, the next guy in line saw his buddy moving his arm around while I was cutting it off. The guy was still anesthetized, but he was in that phase of excitement that you're describing. And don't forget, it's, it's, it's a circle. So we're chemically inducing a coma in the patient with uh, anesthesia. But when we, when we start to take, wake you up, you have to come back through. You go from deep to light coma. So if you're having pain from the surgery, you go in and out of these periods of hyperexcitability, both going to sleep and waking up. Now, this, uh, today, modern anesthesia, I, I have more numbers on you than you can imagine. I can beat to beat tell you how much blood is ejecting from your heart. Back then, they only had three really good signs. First of all, they could find a pulse along the patient's uh, jawline or the carotid artery, and they would watch their breathing. So as anesthesia, especially chloroform and ether works, your breathing slows down and slows down until it just becomes your diaphragm moving. And at that point, they knew that the patients were too deep, and they would take whatever they were doing. They could either take the um, rag off, or they had a thing called a chloroform funnel that actually looks like a modern mask like a chimney that they would shove in and they would take it off. Now, I always tease Rick about this because if I'm given the anesthesia and that's why there's not so many deaths from anesthesia, as soon as you take it off, if the patient starts to breathe, they'll wake up because they're blowing off the anesthetic. Giving anything through your lungs is faster than giving an IV. Your lungs are a wonderful place to exchange gases and also anesthetics. So I always tell Rick, part of the reason that he's fast that the guy giving the anesthetic watches, and as soon as you start breathing with your diaphragm, he goes, game over, and he takes it off. Now, today, before your listeners get upset, we use agents that don't explode, and but we also have drugs we call induction agents. It used to be pentothal. Now it's diprovan or even high-dose narcotics. We have some narcotics that will make you insensible to pain for about five to 10 minutes and put you to sleep. What we do is we chemically blast over that awake to deep sleep so that Rick can work. But at the end, we're still bringing them up. And one of the big arguments between Fran and Rick in the world would be like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Or we would think he's done yet. And we would start lightening the anesthesia and they'll go, he's moving. I'm not done yet. (laughs) So they do have anesthesia. They do use bite bullets. Um, they, They would give them rum, which would be totally not allowed anymore for their stomach. But if, when you hear of amputations, unless it's something that's a totally crushed limb, they're, they're being put to sleep. And that's only at field hospitals and general hospitals. Now, but 95% of all the surgery was done under a general anesthetic. And I think that's something that many people, as you alluded to, Jim, at the start of this discussion, uh, don't understand. It, it really was. And the thought that kind of came to me, you know, I think about every surgery I've had, you know, when you meet with them, they'll say, oh, what's your height? What's your weight? What medication are you on? You know, things like that. 
what were they looking at for the soldiers? I mean, to try to base this, and everybody's different in what they need to be given. Was there that sense of, you know, let's try to tailor it to the patient, or was it kind of one size fits all? There was some records where they would mix the two agents, ether and chloroform, but for the most part, they would just go based on what's happening. It was what you see is what you get type anesthesia. And there weren't trained anesthesia people. When we get to the the Dan Sickle story, we're going to tell you about his anesthetic a little bit. But they would just go by watching. And that's why I said they're they're kind of blessed. I can remember in training an anesthesiologist saying, you would have to go really, really stupid to kill somebody with chloroform and ether because it's given by the lungs. And as soon as you take the mask off, it, it almost leaves your system fast as, as it can. So that's the, that's why they thought anybody could do it. Of course, the deductibles were better back then. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just picturing at the field dressing section. All right, what's your insurance here? Yeah. Yeah, that's de- that determines if you get on the wagon or not. You know. <laughs> Did you have your tetanus shot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so not only do we plan to return to Dan Sickles in episode two, but we're also going to talk about the case of Freeman McGilvery, I guess, you know, case. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, no, not no, We're not going to have time for that. No, we'll have plenty of time for that, Frank. All right, guys. So I think uh, maybe last but not least for part one here, We've talked a lot about wounds. We've talked a lot about treatment, but obviously illness was a significant factor in, um, you know, the Civil War experience. And for us, again, as primarily as Gettysburg historians, obviously, again, one of the most common questions or comments we get is, you know, I hear General Lee wasn't feeling well at Gettysburg and that that impacted his decision making. Now, we may touch more on Lee specifically in part two, but we are going to touch on Lee. Do you want to, for now, just kind of give us your thoughts on illness in general? I think it's very important. And we're, we're talking about the Battle of Gettysburg. And, you know, I think you, anybody who studied the Civil War realizes that it was mostly camp life and marching interspersed with some days of terror called battles. Two-thirds of the people who died in the Civil War died of disease, not from wounds. It's Maybe more interesting to talk about surgery and amputations and wounds, but the fact of the matter is people were dying in the Civil War really from disease and it afflicted people from the top to the bottom. It's a, I tell my visitors, it's a little bit distasteful, but the leading cause of death in the American Civil War was diarrhea, chronic diarrhea that would affect your abilities to get out there and and be an effective soldier. And segueing into General Lee at Gettysburg, that may have impacted his performance here. Fran and I had spent some time uh, going into this as we prepped for the for the um, the episode. Lee was, by all accounts, a very healthy man. He may have acquired malaria in the 1840s when he was uh, helping build a, a fort in Baltimore Harbor. But he was largely a healthy man until late March 1863 in the winter encampment when he either had or had both a heart attack or what's called pericarditis, an inflammation of fluid around the heart. It rendered him bedfast for about two weeks. Robert E. Lee didn't like being in, in bed. He didn't like doctors, apparently. He did come around to being able to take the field again by the middle of April. So he was obviously working hard at the Battle of Chancellorsville in early May. But he was not that healthy a man 
going into Gettysburg. And then, Fran, I'll, I'll give you the diarrhea part of the story if you want to talk about how that may have, no pun intended, impacted his abilities to make decisions. This may or may not be relevant in great detail, but it's a point of discussion. One of the, one of the things with, with Robert Edward Lee and the, the comment you made, Jim, Rick and I find people, when they talk about medicine, they look for one, one cause. It was the diarrhea. It was the heart attack. It was the pericarditis. It was everything. All right. We know multiple reports of him with the, with the trots on July 2nd, back and forth. We know that he is recovering from a heart attack. If he, if he had some type of heart disease, um, the fact that he gets fluid infected around his lung almost points to a transmural, one of the worst type of heart attacks you can have, full thickness heart attacks. And at six to eight weeks, he's on a horse. Man, your cardiologist wouldn't even let you like drive a car at six to eight weeks or anything after that. So when you, when people try to say, Oh, it was his heart attack. Oh, it was dehydration. Oh, it was he may have had a mini stroke. Oh, it was this. It's everything and the fact he doesn't have good information. He's at the point of attack where things are changing faster than they can do. And 30% of the people underneath him are new to the positions that they're commanding, including two new corps commanders in Hill and Yule. All that comes together. And Rick and I will tell you when we start going into some of these specific guys, it's hard to just say that's a bullet wound's easy. He was shot in the head. <laughs> acute lead poisoning, we can get that one. But when you try to look at, at, at medical uh, stuff, the diseases are a problem. These soldiers are drinking water that gives them this diarrhea. Every soldier has some form of night blindness. When they first come to camps, they get things like measles and mumps. And those things, the final common pathway is this, is this diarrhea. Enoch Deddy, the first soldier buried in the Soldiers National Cemetery in October, dies from diarrhea and dehydration. Now, we all smile about that. It's a horrible way to die. It's cramping. You're cold. You're hot. You're lucid. You're not lucid. They have no IVs um, to do that. And it's interesting uh, when, when Rick was talking about that as a nurse anesthetist and, and Eric, when you go in for surgery, one of the first things that I'm concerned about is how healthy are you? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to tell you, none of these guys are healthy. And it's actually Devin right. Watney last year when she was talking about Jubal Early coming into Gettysburg. And I forget what he ordered, 20 barrels of onions. I said, Deb, why onions? Were they going to Philadelphia cheesesteaks? And she says, you, you putts, that's how onions are loaded with vitamin C and they, and they store well. So um, they knew it. They don't like to fight at night because, they, first of all, it's dark. And second of all, they all have some form of, of night blindness. So remember, these guys are now going to get traumatic injuries. And I wouldn't do surgery on them for hangnails. Go ahead, Rick. And that's an important thing to remember. While we're talking about diseases transmitted by bacteria, things like, uh, or viruses, mumps, measles, tuberculosis, diarrhea, Nutritional problems, while these are young, healthy guys, they aren't eating a great diet and right. they're deficient in vitamin C. Scurvy, you think of it in sailors, it is a tremendous problem in the Civil War for many reasons. Chief among them, it causes weakness and inability to be energetic. It slows down wound healing. It's not just a matter of, oh, I got a little vitamin C deficiency and vitamin A deficiency leads to that problem of not being able to see anything at night uh, when you have to try to figure out which way to go. And where are these heroes that we talked about earlier? These women, these nurses, they're making 
broths, getting water, they're getting fresh milk. I, I got to tell you, when, when Rick and I talk about it, a lot of the soldiers that walked off the Civil War battlefield at Gettysburg and other places owe their lives to those, as, as we call them, tough nut nurses who say, yeah, yeah, I know you're sick. Eat this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you don't want to get up and walk. Move. And and just cleanliness, they, they don't understand germ theory. They have an idea about it. They like fresh air. That's why Camp Letterman has a westerly flow through it. Um, one of the things Jonathan Letterman did, and your your podcast people are, are big people do that, he told soldiers to stop going on any tree that you have to urinate on because he realized that that was spreading diseases and he made sinks and he made, you only have to go to Andersonville to see how terrible uh, human excrement can be. And, and you think, you look back today and think, you know, that should be common sense. It, it wasn't back then, right, Rick? It was not common sense. Yeah, and you'll see accounts even early in the war. You know, I've done a lot of research in the 26th North Carolina, and there's a period where Henry Bergwin is away from the regiment in 1861. He's actually dealing with typhoid fever. And he comes back, and he's appalled at the condition of the camp, you know, how dirty it is. Uh, you know, there are no latrines dug. There are no sinks dug. And he's, you know, absolutely laying into Zebulon Vance, the colonel over this, saying, you know, this is a major oversight that you have done here. And I think that's one of those things that we don't often think about in camps is what you have to do to make sure this is a healthy camp on things. And sometimes you, know, you see soldiers talking about we're in an unhealthy place, we're in a bad camp. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's something we don't often think about, you know, in, in these things. We haven't touched on it yet, but there are two large civilian organizations that mm-hmm. help the military in the care of the wounded, the United States Christian Commission and the United States Sanitary Commission. And why did the Sanitary Commission come into existence? Because you alluded to it, Eric, with the, the Crimean War. Nine mm-hmm. to one uh, uh, deaths in the Crimean War, disease to wounds. Oh, yeah. The Sanitary Commission came into existence to help with the sanitation of yeah. soldiers' camps. And, and it was never to be forgotten. And every time it was, as you said, Eric, it was a problem. Well, you know, a couple of years ago when I was in London, I went to the, the Florence Nightingale Museum there, which is about her work as a nurse in the Crimean War and later conflicts. But, yeah, you, know, you often see some of these nurses being referred to as the Florence Nightingale of the North, the Florence Nightingale of the South. But I think, you know, her biggest thing when she arrives in the Crimea is to simply clean up the hospitals. That's the biggest thing. Most of her folks were basically doing cleaning more than anything else at first because it was just so you know, such disarray. And, you know, we kind of take for granted we, we have a sterile operating room. We kind of take that for granted. And uh, you didn't really have that in the 19th century. No. Yeah, you can almost see the surgeon outside brushing flies off yeah. while operating. And uh, I, I had a laugh when you said that um, Dorothea Dix is the nurse that gets credited for being in the Civil War. She was, uh, she's kind of telling us that the men were basically young men. Because she wanted women who were dowdy, uh, covered with, right. she didn't want pretty women. Uh, Cornelia Hancock, uh, had trouble getting up here because they kind of thought you're a little too provocative to be taking care of these men. So I got to tell you that if you survive the Civil War, you owe it to a nurse, you owe it to a, a town folk like Sarah Broadhead that, that went in and, and just made you get better. And I, I think they, they're part of the story that doesn't get out. And one of the books I have downstairs in my library is, is Women at Gettysburg. The stories yeah. are phenomenal. That when you read them, what you'll notice 
is that they don't talk about the fact that I turned over patient A, B, and C, and he threw up all over the front of me, or I, I found blood in my hair. They don't, and I think that's the Victorian era. I think they're not telling them. Yeah, you know, one of the things, when Britt and I did the Peach Orchard book, one of the things we wanted to make sure we included was the accounts of women who were in and around the Peach Orchard. You know, you touched on Anna Etheridge. Um, another one that people often don't talk about is Harriet Patience Dame, who was attached to the second New Hampshire. But at the end of the day, you can tell their stories. But as you've kind of alluded to, when you try to deep dive research on their experience, there just ain't much written down and you just don't have a lot to work with. But, you know, I'm glad we've had the opportunity today to touch on them. And unless any of you guys have any closing thoughts, this would probably be a perfect opportunity to wrap up part one, because what we're going to do in part two is talk more about the individuals and the uh, personal stories. But before we do that, Fran Fiak, Rick Schrader, any closing comments for part one? Uh, no, just a, a, a thank you to you and Eric for allowing us to, to uh, uh, be part of this. It's uh, something that Fran and I love to talk about and talk about and talk about. So um, we're grateful for the opportunity. Uh, ditto here. It's, it's, it's fun, you guys. And Eric, offline, do you know of any forward aid station for the 26th North Carolina? We're trying to figure a way to do, we do a thing with Union soldiers progressing, yeah. but we'd like to try to do it with, um, the Southern side. I mean, there, I know of a number of places that would have been, you know, there's Samuel Moore Farm, which is Heath's Division Hospital. Um, there's a number of, of areas that certainly are being used by the 26th. My sense is probably their field aid station is as the fighting's progressing, it really it comes around Willoughby's run. I would think so. There's a I have actually one account from William Edwards that talks about reaching that point where he receives treatment and he sees John Lane being brought back to this point as well. So I would say it's probably following them as they go through. And if you just kind of think about it, if you get past kind of the ravine moving east through Herbst Woods. Willoughby's Run's a pretty safe place to be at that point. There's water there. I often wonder about the quarry. Like, I think yeah. the quarry would be a place if I was wounded, I would go to. But very good. Thank yeah, I think you. the 26, they're a little, they're a little further away from that, where their line yeah. is. But certainly, you know, um, and these are things that you have to kind of delve through letters and you look at it and you say, okay, I think this is what he's talking about here, but they never write out and say, this is our field aid station. You wish they would. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, hey, you know, why don't you mention this? But, you know, to him, he's just this. William Edwards was shot in the hip. Um, he actually walks back to Winchester. Oh, nice. He doesn't well, even that get the tells you it didn't go into the bone, whatever yeah. shot in the hip yeah. meat. And he had lousy health insurance. Yeah, I get. Yeah, I guess uh, he didn't meet his deductible yet. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so you read this, and I think that's the challenge for a lot of these medical accounts. Sometimes they're very clinical no real flash to them or this is just something these guys kind of take for granted that they're here. They don't really seem the need to mention it. Whereas we as historians say, Oh man, you really need to mention this. Why didn't they do this? And yeah, we want every detail. Yeah. yeah it's just something that's just not there. All right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap up part one. Don't go away. Cause we're going to be back with more with Fran and Rick in part two. Wow, that was great. Better than expected. I mean, I knew Rick and Fran were going to deliver the goods, but I think they really came through for us. 
Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Jim and I, we're historians. We're not medical professionals. So Although we people, could be. We could be. I guess we could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if I want to go back. I mean, I guess we're going to go to medical school now. I guess or? for, you know, a, a donation on Patreon or something, you know, we could perform medical services. I don't I'm yeah, just making this You know, crap um, I think know. our staff attorney, Dan Sickles, is going to be uh, being a little upset if we're doing medical care while unlicensed that's but. that's true that would be part of our disclaimer right we're not do- we're not speaking for anybody else and we're not doctors either so we should probably add that exactly so yeah i mean rick and Fran, it was great bringing their professional background as well as their background as guides and historians in i think they gave everyone a better appreciation of of what it took to put these folks back together mm-hmm. we yeah. talked so much about what it does to destroy these armies how do you put the pieces back together? So I think they gave us a really great background that I think yeah. will give a more uh, nuanced and complete view for our listeners of the Gettysburg campaign. Yeah, and I think uh, in part two, you know what we like to do on this show, go big picture and then go into the details. So in episode one, we've kind of talked about a little bit about the what. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about the who and some of the, the not the rock group, but the people involved, the who, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but we're going to talk more in part two about some of the people involved in the human interest stories to kind of help bring this to life and make it a more complete picture. So certainly stay tuned for that. I think part one was great. Part two, I think is going to be maybe even better. Uh, so we're really excited about it. So, uh, so once again, we want to thank you for listening. This has been the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast. Take care, folks.